week that I wanted to share with you all. If you're like me, you enjoyed your Christmas season, you breezed through that, and then what's next? What's next to celebrate? Easter, Easter's coming up. Fun, woohoo, celebration. Without a thought of this current 40-day season of Lent self-examination. Huh? Maybe I'm the only one that likes to just celebrate all the time. Maybe it's just me. Every year I feel like Lent comes around, it kind of hits me out of left field, huh? Oh, that's right, Lent. I don't have to do that. I'm not Catholic. Well, like that's what goes on in my head. I'm being dead honest with you. That's what goes on in my head year after year. Maybe it's just me. Now, there are a number of reasons why we may not observe Lent, but it is interesting that the somber season has become quite obsolete among Protestants. We love to celebrate, right? And celebrate we must. Anyone who knows me knows that any excuse to celebrate, I'm there. We love seasons of celebration, but for God's people, both celebration and somberness characterize our life before God. Excuse me, together. Our life before God should be taken very seriously while celebratory. For Jews, as laid out in Leviticus 23 for hundreds and hundreds of years, the joyous festival of Rosh Hashanah, the new year, is followed by the somber festival of Yom Kippur the somber day of atonement for sin, which is then concluded in celebrating the Feast of Booths, which we saw the people observing last week in Nehemiah 8. I think there's something for us Christians to consider in the history of our life before God together here. Last week, Brian led us through Nehemiah 8, where we saw God's people caught up in a revival, God's Spirit stirring the hearts of His people through the public reading of His Word, right? And then they respond to the word, Amen, Amen, and then they started to weep. Remember that? But the leader said, hold off, hold off, don't weep now. It's a time for celebration. Rejoice in the Lord this day. This day is holy. And they go on to celebrate the Feast of Booths. That's what we saw last week. Today, we're going to go back to the people's initial response to God's Word. Mourning and weeping. Why were they weeping? Things were going well for them, right? I mean, from the previous chapters, what we're seeing is they've persevered through opposition. They've just completed the major task of rebuilding the wall. They're having this great revival. Their faith is being revived together, and they're celebrating. 
Why are they weeping at first? What's going on beneath the surface? What I want to do now is pop the hood on this community and diagnose what's really going on inside. And I think we catch the greatest, we, 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 we get the clearest sense of what's going on inside actually from the end of the chapter. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by reading verses 36 and 37. They'll be up on the screen. To give a hint, to give us a sense of what's going on under the hood. Okay? In chapter 9, verses 36 and 37. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, they're talking to God, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please, so we are in great distress. Hmm. The people of God feel enslaved. Still, even though they're back in God's place and they're in great distress. They are slaves in distress and God did this to them because of their sin. That's no light matter. Family, are you in distress today? Emotionally? Physically? Spiritually? Distressed? Your families? Your marriage? your relationships, your life circumstances? Do you feel that you're here because it's your fault? Do you feel guilty? Should you feel guilty? Is God trying to show us something These are the questions that I'm sure the people of God were asking themselves back then. And what we're going to look at this morning is, one, how did they approach God in working through their distress? And two, is God a God that we can find hope and delight in even if we're guilty and deserving of his judgments? That's what we're going to look at today. Okay, so let's, it's going to be a somber day. But there'll be joy in there, I believe. 
because our God is a good God. But we are called to take this life seriously before God. So let's pray and then read the first three verses of Nehemiah 9. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, when your word goes out, it does not return to you empty, but it accomplishes your purposes as you please. So Lord, would you apply your word to our hearts in transformative ways today that we might know you, the fullness of your love toward us, and that we might respond all the more in conformity to the image of your son because we know that that pleases you. So would you do that for us as we read your word and your word goes out today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read the first three verses now. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter nine. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So this is two days after they just finished celebrating the Feast of Booths. And now it's time to mourn. Notice something here. All Israel, again, separates from the foreigners. Okay, now whether this is another mass divorce, not really sure. But what's clear is, is there's, there's a marking of those who are responsible for to preserve the covenantal relationship with God. So all Israel separates from the foreigners of the land and they assemble fasting in sackcloth with ashes all over their heads. In other words, they prepared to come before the Lord in confession and repentance. The people would fast to dedicate undivided attention, time for undivided attention, and their hunger would drive them to pray. Here, what we see from Nehemiah 8 into 9, their fasting is in response. They're responding to their conviction over sin having been confronted by God's word that has just been publicly read twice. God is intervening in their lives in powerful ways. That's what's going on here. The sackcloth was, was like heavy burlap, often made of coarse goat hair, and they would drape it over themselves, and they would smear ashes uh, that, that, that came from the burning garbage and dung site. They would smear ashes all over their head. These gestures served as outward signs of inner emotional grief 
and sorrow over sinning against God. And, but they're not just a sign. It's actually a physical embodiment of the condition of their hearts. They're really feeling like this. That's what's going on here. All Israel assembled fasting with sackcloth and ashes on their heads. And they stood for a six-hour worship service this day. You remember that next time I go over five minutes. <laughs> this morning, likely. You remember that. I'm good to you. They, they read from the book of the law a third time now, from Nehemiah 8 into 9. This is the third public reading of God's Word. Three hours straight. Then followed up by another three hours of confessing sins and worshiping God. The Word of God is living and active, huh? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God is powerful. This family is what revival looks like. God's Spirit moving through His Word, stirring up the hearts of His people to repentance and faith. That's revival. It's that simple. And yet, extraordinarily powerful. Extraordinarily powerful. They approached God first in great humility, preparing to receive His Word, willing to examine their ways, and willing to respond where need be in confession and repentance. What follows now is a long prayer, one of the longest in the Bible, that we will walk through step by step, which summarizes the un what unfolded during the six-hour service. We're not going to have a six-hour service that we're reading right now, but this is basically encompassing what, what the, 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 the main things of what came, for, what came out of this six-hour service, okay? So I would ask you now, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Verses 4 through 6. Now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heavens of heavens, and with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down to you. You may be seated. I wasn't going to make you stand for the whole chapter. <laughs> I'm good to you. 
The Levite priests lead the people toward God in prayer. Notice something here. We don't have any individual praying. This is a theme we have seen since Ezra 1. We've seen it woven throughout the book. What is captured here in this prayer seems to be, seems to be representing the corporate prayer of the community at large. The entire community. They start with adoration. We've seen this in the prayers in Ezra and Nehemiah thus far. They look to him. He is glorious, exalted. He alone is God. He is creator of all things, alone. The giver of life itself. They come to God like our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Verses 7 and 8. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to the, his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. They sing. This is the story of Genesis. They adore God for being both creator and Redeemer. God chose Abram out of the world, Abram completely undeserving, and adopts him into his family. You're mine now, Abraham, and you will be the father of many in my family. I covenant myself to you, Abraham. And you have kept your promises, they acknowledge, because you are righteous. God is righteous because he is faithful and true. Verses 9 through 12. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them. And you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the mist of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light the way for them in which they were to go. This is the story of the Exodus. You saw the afflictions of our fathers. You heard their cries and you rescued them. Notice verse 10. Look at verse 10. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his people because they were arrogant 
And you did this to make a name for yourself. As it still remains up until this very day. Hmm. But isn't that arrogant? Doing something to make a name for yourself? Isn't that arrogant? Yes, it is. For all of us, but not for God. Because God doesn't need anything. We need a whole lot. We need approval, justification. We need affirmation, always needing more and more. God is always full. He is so full and complete within himself, he only gives. God only gives. God, unlike us, makes a name for himself upon the whole earth in order to show us who he is. Creator, redeemer, faithful, true, and good. Verses 13 through 15. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for, them, for their hunger. You brought them forth water from a rock for them for their thirst, and you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. This is the story of Leviticus. After rescuing them from slavery, he gives and gives and gives. He gives them right rules, good statutes, true laws. He's forming a people to be like himself. Right, true, and good. He gives them bread, water, and promises them a new land. So his people would dwell under his rule in his place. Now, up to this point, all we see is mercy, mercy, mercy as the people look back over their history. It's already becoming clear. They're retelling their stories right here in this worship service of prayer. Let's read verses 16 through 21. But they going to get bumpy now. Our fathers acted arrogantly. 
They became stubborn and would not listen to your commands. They refused to listen, and they did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to, to, return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and loving kindness. And you did not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not even wear out, nor did their feet swell. This is the story of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God is trying to lead his people toward their good. And they keep frustrating God's plans by turning from him toward their own ways. Look at verse 16. This is important. God's people became themselves arrogant. They became stubborn and didn't listen. This word for stubborn in verses 16 and 17 is literally stiff-necked. They became stiff-necked. It's a funny word that I've heard for years now in my Christian life as I've read through the Bible. But I didn't really consider its meaning until studying this week. I often thought it was a no, a, a, a high-nosed, stiff neck kind of pride. And that might be true. But the image became clearer this week when I was doing a most profound spiritual practice, walking my dog, Winston, our four-month-old German shepherd pup. Winston's getting a lot of attention up here these days. Poor guy, he can't even defend himself. When I walk Winston, it is for his good in a number of ways. Last month, three months old, when I would walk Winston out there, we would just trot along. Winston, heel, and he was right there by my side. Now, month four, his will is developing. You know what that means. Now, from block to block, I find myself and I feel Winston, come. Winston, come. I know where I'm going. I want to go this way. Winston, come. He's becoming more 
stiff-necked, unyielding to my guidance, that is. Now, back then, the image was probably associated with oxen, not German shepherd puppies. But you get the point. You get the point. This is the image used for God's people. Once relieved of our distresses, we have a tendency to become stiff-necked. I know what I'm doing now. I'm going my way now. I know enough. In our pride, we forget. We forget, forget, forget who he is and all that he's done for us. And we stop listening. Remember a couple weeks ago at Baptism Sunday, Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema, to listen in Hebrew is to listen and obey. They chose their own ways over God's ways. I know what I'm doing now. And so I do what is right in my eyes. They were unyielding to him. And so they committed great blasphemies. In other words, that's what we see in verse 18, great blasphemies. In other words, they professed to be God's people and they professed to be committed to God, but they lived out of line with what they claimed to believe. Family, this is no different than what we see today with many Christians who claim to be followers of Christ and yet just simply do not do what he says. Far too many professing Christians that look nothing like him and actually look no different than the world around us. Stiff-necked, in pride, and disobedience. That's how this works. Pride is at the heart of sin. Self-deification. I yield to no one. I know what's best for me. And so I do what is right in my own eyes. And yet, beautiful, God is a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. These are the very words God revealed about himself when he passed by Moses on the rock in Exodus 34. Beautiful words. This is who God is. He continues to give and give. He did not leave his people. He continued to lead them by his presence, by his spirit. He fed them, he clothed them, and he even gave them those special released imperishable crocs. After 40 years, they didn't wither. He gave and gave and gave to them, them who were completely undeserving. Verses 22 to 25. 
You also gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted, them, uh, and allotted to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took took possession of houses full of every good thing. They hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and reveled in your great goodness. This is the story of Joshua. Despite their ongoing rebellious ways, God kept them and led them into the land as he promised, a land flowing with milk and honey, as he promised, and he multiplied them as promised, delivering all their enemies into their hands, as he promised. And this is a good deal. This is a good deal for God's people. Two commands, follow me and get fat. That's a good deal. Delight yourself in me. And all I've given you, eat from every tree, drink from the rivers of my delight, bask yourself in my goodness. That's what they were called to do. Verses 26 through 29. But, uh-oh. They became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs. And they killed your prophets who admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that, so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. This is the story of the judges. Rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy, rebellion. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Verses 30 through 31. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. This is the story of kings leading to the exile and their return up to this very day. 
So by this point, it is very clear another step in their approach to God in working through their distress. First, they come to him in humility, willing and prepared to examine their ways. And two, what do they do? They retell their stories. Their stories of God's faithfulness over and over again and their wickedness, their rebellion. Family, Bible stories exist to make God known. World history exists to make God known and ultimately loved, worshipped, and glorified. Remember, remember, remember who God is and all that he's done for us. That's what they're doing in working through their distress. Verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. Verse 32 is the only petition in this entire prayer. It's the only explicit request that's being made. And it's kind of implied. This is the only request being made. Therefore, our God, that's personal covenantal language here, would you consider all these hardships that have come upon us through the exile up to today? In other words, would you have a bit more mercy for us? Verse 33 through 38. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, and our priests, our fathers, have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom with your great goodness which you gave them with the broad and rich land which you set before them did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its, pro its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders and our Levites and our priests. Verse 33, if we can go back to that, is the big conclusion of the whole prayer. Up to this point, verses 5 through 31 contain seven cycles of mercy, rebellion, mercy, rebellion. And the end of it all, verse 33 you are righteous. This word just here, same word righteous in ESV, other translation. You are righteous 
in all that has come upon us. The end of the matter is this. You have been faithful. We have acted wickedly. They own their corporate identification with their forefathers, acknowledging we are the same people with the same hearts. And most importantly, how has God responded to their rebellious ways? Grace. Grace. Even his discipline toward them is a means of his grace in keeping them. Where sin abounds, his grace superabounds. Amen? So after reminding themselves of who God is and his abundant grace toward them, they confess their sins, they choose to repent and agree, we should recommit again. Maybe the eighth time is the charm. What do you think? You think they'll keep their word this time? Highly unlikely. Which begs the question, if their unfaithfulness is inevitable, it is certain, then how will they ever stay righteous and preserve their relationship with God? I'll let God answer that. In the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 3, God says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction. Everyone, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified is a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross appeased God's wrath on our behalf for our sin, for those who believe in him. And listen to the last line. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the patience of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Family, this is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. How can God overlook all those cycles of rebellion, rebellion, arrogance, blasphemy, how can he overlook all the sin of his people? That's not right. Have you seen what some of his people have done in the Old Testament? Have you seen what we've done? How can he overlook all the sin of his people? That's not right. That's not just. Yes, it is. 
Oh, yes, it is. Because there would come a day, and that day has come, when God himself would take the punishment for our sin on our behalf in the person and work of his son, Jesus. Nobody saw that coming. He is both just and the justifier of those who believe in him. He satisfied his own judgments and penalty for sinning against him himself. He is righteous and always will be. Is God a God whom we can find hope and delight in even if we're guilty and deserving of his discipline? You bet he is. You bet he is. And no one can tell him otherwise. We have no right to tell God, your gospel can't reach me. Oh, no, no. I deserve my punishment. I deserve my discipline. That's arrogance. That thought says, I exalt myself over you and my gavel has dropped. I deserve it. Family, that's the big idea of this whole chapter. That God's great faithfulness reigns over our great failures. Amen? God's great faithfulness reigns over our great failures. His mercy and faithfulness and grace always prevails. So then, when we find ourselves in these places of distress, sorrow, guilt, conviction over sin, what are we to do? Because this is real. I feel the weight of guilt upon me. What am I to do then? Come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. Let me carry that for you. It's why I've come. Yield yourself to me. Trust me. Believe in me. Follow me. And you will be set free. Isn't God so good? It's humbling to the ground how good he is. Who else but Jesus could be this kind to us? No one. No one. 
Oh, how immeasurable is the greatness of his power and goodness toward us. Amen. He's beautiful. Now, now what? What does this mean for us moving forward? I want to leave us reflecting on one question this week. And I hope that you take this question seriously. Because the reality is that it won't necessarily be fun. For us fun people that like to just celebrate. This question is not going to necessarily be fun, but it can be freeing. It can be very freeing. Here's the question. In what ways do we, you individually and us together, in what ways do we think that we're right when we might be wrong in our life before God? In what ways do we think that we're right when we might be wrong? in our life before God, wrong in how we see, wrong in what we believe, wrong in how we behave before God in our life together. In what ways might we be operating where we are effectively telling God, I know what I'm doing. I know what's best for me. I know what's best for my marriage. I know what's best for my family. I know what's best for my ministry. I know what's best for this church. I know how to have a functional Christian life. I know I do what I need to do, and I don't do what I don't need to do. I know what are my sins. I know what are not my sins. I know how you made me. I know how to treat others who I don't like. I know how to respond to the challenging issues of our day. I know. I know how to think about those who are not Christians. I know how to treat them. I know how to live in the world. I know how to live my life. And you're still distressed. Still enslaved. To your knowledge, possibly. And your passions. In what ways do we think that we're right in our eyes when we might be wrong before the eyes of God? We might be really wrong. How do we know if we're yielding ourselves to God in accordance with his word? Now, we're going to pursue spiritual clarity on that together in this week ahead. This is our corporate application. You ready? We're going to have another prayer week ahead starting tomorrow. Family, it is good for us to pop the hood of our lives and allow God to diagnose what's going on inside. It is good for us. It's not easy to discern at times, as we saw very clearly. You think we're different than them? That's not going to be good for you if you think that's, no, that, that's, yes, we are different. We are the exact same people. That's part of the main message of Scripture. Same people, same hearts. It's not easy to discern at times. We become e too easily stiff-necked. An arrogant person who knows that they're arrogant is nowhere near as arrogant as the arrogant person who can't see their arrogance. You get that? It's not easy to tell at times. That is why 
interrupting our routines for disciplined prayer and self-examination is really good for us. Family, God wants the same for us and all the more now that we are in Christ Jesus and have spiritual capacities to do this. He wants us all the more to be like his son Jesus together. That's his goal for us. So this is what we're going to do. Every morning, starting tomorrow, a prayer focus is going to go out on, the e- on all our email chains. If you need to sign up, you can fill out a communication card in the back. You could sign up online if you want to be part of this. Okay, every morning, a prayer focus is going to go out. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. We're going to give thanks. And we're going to examine our ways before the Lord. And we're going to confess sin and repent where need be. Let's examine our own ways and examine our ways together. Self and corporate examination. Pray that the Spirit would move throughout our church body. Maybe you're led to identify something or someone in which you need to go and make something right. Maybe you need to go restore a relationship, own some sin, restore fractured areas of life, relationships, ministry here. Would you be humble enough to come, to the, come before the Lord and seek his guidance in this? I encourage you all to participate in this prayer week as we move forward. Remember the words of the Protestant reformers. We should always be reforming. That is, reforming ourselves back to God's standard as revealed in his word. This is a great way that we can examine our ways before the Lord and turn to him by faith. Yield yourself to God's leading. I'm also going to ask another thing that we really haven't done often here. I'm going to invite you to fast with us this week. If you feel led, maybe you want to skip breakfast or lunch one day and instead pray every hour on the hour for a few minutes, dedicating time to seek God with us together this week. Maybe you want to fast for one day. Maybe you want to fast for one meal one day. Maybe one meal two or three days of the week. I don't know. You know yourselves, your bodies, and your schedules. But family, fasting has always been a vital spiritual discipline for God's people. All throughout the history of God's people, it's worth us seriously considering in our pursuit of God this week ahead. So prayer and fasting, that's what I would encourage you all to be part of this week. We're going to fast for a God-centered purpose. Our physical hunger should remind us of our spiritual need for God and drive us to pursue Him in holiness and righteousness together. Amen? Let's seek the Lord Be willing to examine our ways according to his word. Allow his spirit to illuminate areas of our life that we may not see, we might be blind to, and be willing to turn from our ways and to him in faith. He is with us. Amen? Let's strive to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. That's the question for the week ahead. In what ways do we think that we're right when we might be wrong in our life before God. And remember, as we go about self-examination, I'm going to close out in prayer now. Remember, God's great faithfulness reigns over our great failures. His grace is sufficient for us. Remember that as we go about this week ahead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are a gracious and compassionate shepherd. Thank you for your graces and your mercies, Lord. Let us not take your grace for granted. 
Let us not take our call for righteousness and holiness for granted. Let us not make light of that. Let us not remember, let us not forget that your first words of revealing your ministry on earth was repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Would you show us, Lord? Would you show us? Thank you for your, your, your patience over us. We thank you that your patience is meant to lead us to repentance and faith. Would you work among us through your spirit this week ahead, Lord? Help us discern the areas of our life that we need to turn to you, that we might need to confess and repent of. Would you heal fractures among us? Restore breaches, Lord, among us? That you would be glorified, Lord. Awaken faith among us, those who do not know you, and strengthen our faith together that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you all. Have a wonderful week ahead.